Welcome back to the Dealmakers Podcast Show with serial entrepreneur Alejandro Cremades, best-selling author of The Art of Startup Fundraising and co-founder at Panthera Advisors. In this podcast, we ask our guests about their successful acquisitions and financing rounds. This episode is brought to you by Scott Alford. He is one of the top online business mentors and advisors, and he also owns dozens of businesses that have collectively generated tens of millions of dollars. And this done in multiple niches, countries across the world, and so forth. In his new Investing with Scott newsletter, he gives you a behind-the-scenes look into acquiring, building, and scaling businesses based on his experience of helping hundreds of entrepreneurs scale all the way up to seven and eight figures. As an entrepreneur, since he was seven, and by the time he was 16, having a million-dollar business, while ending up a million in debt and now by 31 becoming a decamillionaire, he has a massive amount of insights, understandings, knowledge, and wisdom for scaling and building a business. You can now check what he's up to by going into investing.scottalford.com. This episode is brought to you by Basecamp. So Basecamp is a project management and team communication application that has been around for about 18 years, and it's used by thousands of companies today. Basecamp is all about simplicity. It is designed to give you and your team the tools you need to get work done. They have message boards, to-dos, file storage, chat calendar, and much more. Basecamp is built to help you in getting out of your way and let you focus on what matters. Again, you know, like when you're adding a bunch of people, there's a bunch of files that need to be shared. You need to be effective. And that's where Basecamp comes in. They actually are from the guys that brought to you 37 signals. And really, they help in making decisions simple and also effective. So go to Basecamp. Their pricing is simple and they give you the all, all really the features in a single plan. No upsells, no upgrades. Go to Basecamp.com forward slash dealmakers and try Basecamp for free. No credit card required and cancel at any time. Thank you, Basecamp, for sponsoring this episode. All righty. Hello, everyone, and welcome to the Dealmaker Show. So today we have a pretty exciting you know, founder that is joining us. We're going to be talking about freelancing, building, scaling, financing, you name it, everything. Everything in between, all the good stuff that we like to hear. So without further ado, let's welcome our guest today, Teo Sabil. Welcome to the show. Great to be on the show, Alejandro. So originally born there in, in London. So give us a little of a walk through memory lane. How was life growing up? Sure. So uh, I was uh, born and raised in London till I was about six years old, which was enough to remember a little bit and you know consider it really my home, but uh, not um, not long enough to to really get used to it. Uh, from six to eighteen, I lived in the countryside in deepest darkest Kent, about half an hour away even from a bus stop. So you know, no internet, you know, no nothing. It was uh, there was not an awful lot to do besides build things in the garden um, or, or try and start businesses, as it turns out. And from there, I went and did engineering at Warwick, and then finally moved back to London to start Cloud NC when I was must have been twenty three. Hey, but you had it in you because you were doing door to door sales, you know, like early on. Yeah, door-to-door sales was actually my very first job. Um, I was uh, for a few months troping around the around the UK in the middle of winter, trying to sell people government-backed uh, insulation. Uh, so four hundred pounds get your house insulated. 
And so I learned to convince people to let me into their houses to drill holes in their walls and let them into their lofts to you know, um, measure how thick the insulation was from quite an early age. And uh, that skill set was extremely useful, as it turns out. Um, I spoke to about 4,000 strangers on the doorstep over a few months. And what did you learn there about not being shy or not caring what people are going to think of you or, or that kind of stuff that as human beings we typically deal with where when we go out and try to sell something, yeah, I mean, uh, cold sales is a hard gig as your as your first job. But being my first job, I was so incredibly enthusiastic just to have a job that uh, I didn't really didn't really care. <laughs> so uh, I'd say that speaking to so many thousands of people on the doorstep um, it definitely built up my confidence uh, to be able to speak to people face to face. And you know, it taught me that the, the fastest way to solve almost any problem is to speak to somebody either face to face or on the phone. And you know, the next job that I had, which was in an eBay equestrian warehouse that uh, involved me speaking to strangers on the phone for hours and hours every day and like you know most young people at the time i was terrified of picking up the phone i'd much rather send texts to people so that was a, another seminal experience in more ways than one now for you i mean it was quite an experience or a journey before you went at it and, and started your own company which we're going to be talking about in in just a little bit here but but it kind of it was a transition from freelancing to consulting and then to like building your own thing so Walk us through all those sequences of events until, you know, you finally came up with the idea and said, hey, let's let's go. Sure. Well, the entrepreneurial journey for me actually started when I was uh, 15 one summer. I was desperate for a laptop, but I couldn't afford one and couldn't get a good one with good specs. And so I was then desperate for a gaming PC, but again, couldn't afford one. And so I gardened for a year to build up the capital to, you know, go and buy my own computer. And I realized, hang on, if I buy all of the components individually, then I'll be able to get a better one and I'll be able to get it faster. And then once I'd done that, I realized, hey, this is worth more than the sum of its parts. So I sold it to get a better computer. And then I did that again and again. And then I realized, hey, hang on, I can sell computers before I even have the parts for them. And then I can do two-day shipping, just get the parts in, put it together outdoor. And that's actually faster than Dell's putting together computers. I only realized that many years later. And um, that turned into my first business, which was building and selling custom gaming PCs on eBay. And I probably built 30 or 40 over the course of a couple of summers. And you know that, uh, that was definitely um, financially helpful. But I learned a little bit about most things about running a business from an incredibly early age you know how to do financial forecasts and projections in excel um, i won't comment on the quality of those projections from the time um how to do you know marketing how to use photoshop how all about e-commerce dealing with customers you know on the phone by email etc paypal all of these things i was very lucky to get access to that knowledge from a very early age so when i started my second little venture when i was 18 and then when i left university and started Cloud NC, it wasn't a decision. It was just the obvious thing to do because of course I was gonna start a business. It wasn't even the first one that I'd done. So then so then what was, you know, like that the uh, triggering point that led you to Cloud NC that you were like, this this is it. This is the one that I wanna that I wanna go for now. Again, it just seemed really obvious at the time. Um when I was still at university, um a startup uh, call it startup factory called entrepreneur first approached me and said hey would you like to come join our program we'll introduce you to a co-founder and you don't even need an idea to join i pitched them on what was a 3d printing idea i'd been working on at the time and had been trying to patent but between the period of being accepted onto the accelerator and actually walking through the door i fell out of love with the 3d printing industry and i fell in love with 
essentially disrupting traditional manufacturing. I'd realized that all of the most serious and capable manufacturing equipment that is out there was still manually controlled. And I had grown up being used to 3D printing and high-grade you know, consumer software, and I was expecting to be able to click a few buttons and get what I wanted out of manufacturing equipment. And I was astounded by how manual everything was once I really got into the nuts and bolts. And so I threw away the 3D printing idea. Lots of people were doing that, and I didn't believe it anymore. And instead took on this, why don't we just make CNC milling machines one-click devices problem? And Entrepreneur First loved that. And I stood up on stage on day one of the accelerator. I pitched out that these machines should be entirely autonomous, not totally manual. And my co-founder, Chris, thought that was a great idea, said, let's work together. And that was day one of Cloud NC. So what were the early days like? Oh, the early days were fantastic. You know, when you're uh, when you're a first time founder founding your first business and you've got, you know, just like enough enough cash to pay your own way, uh, you have to do everything yourself and everything is a new and exciting lesson. You know, it doesn't matter if you're fixing the coffee machine or putting up shelves or, you know, filing with companies house and sourcing out your shareholders agreement, everything has to be done by yourself. So if you like solving dozens and dozens of totally unique problems you've never seen before on a daily basis, then it's an incredibly exciting time period. So the early days were very much like that. 20, 30 new problems in a day, have to solve them all, and then the next day is going to be completely different. Now, for the people that are listening to get it, what ended up being the business model of Cloud and see how do you guys make money? So there are two ways that we make money. Um, one is by selling metal components uh, such as this. This um, comes out of the first class cabin of a Singapore Airlines, um, uh, I want to say, um, 777. And um, from our factory network and the other way is about to be licensing our software and what our software does is it makes it very much easier to produce highly precise metal components like the one that i'm holding here in my hand and if you can make them in something more akin to a one-click manner with no expertise rather than an incredibly expert manner requiring dozens of hours of expert effort then you can lower the cost whilst increasing the quality of delivery and speeding up the period in which it takes to get past customers. Now, how did you go about capitalizing the business? Because obviously once you go through an accelerator, they, they help you all across the board, but obviously they, they give you access to financing, to really understanding what needs to happen from one financing cycle to the next. So how do you go about capitalizing the business? Mm. So we approached it in, uh, I want to say, a manner similar to how starting a business uh, goes in that we always had a fundraising problem in front of us and we always just found a way to solve it. And that has led us through a fundraising journey that has seen us take on angel capital, family money, family office money, venture capital, corporate capital, venture debt, um, every conceivable type of capital except for private equity, I think that we've, we've now taken on. And so we went out and did a traditional seed round raise, which is, you know, um, at typically backing the people more than the idea. Um, at that netted us our first two million pounds, aside from a few hundred uh, K that we managed to raise through our accelerator and a family and friends network. Uh, then a couple of years later, 2018, came our Series A led by Atomico, nine million pounds. That was enough to really start scaling up the tech team and start striving for product market fit. Um, then with that landed us actually right to do our Series B just as COVID hit, I was actually due to get on a plane to the States uh, one day before 
sorry, one day after the US travel ban came into effect. And so suddenly I wasn't going into the States anymore. And we had five months of runway and an enormous burn rate and no one was writing checks anymore. So that threw us into um, a pretty extraordinary state of survival mode where we need to massively slash our burn and find capital in a market where nobody was writing checks. And that was uh, when we discovered the family office market um, and the ultra high net worth market. And we put together a series of convertible notes led by our existing investors and then bringing on family office capital who at that time were writing checks, even when VCs weren't. And that took us to the point where the technology has sufficiently matured that it caught the attention of the biggest corporates in our space um, on the software side, Autodesk, and on the manufacturing side, Lockheed Martin. And Autodesk led our Series B with many, again, family offices and existing investors following through. Um, to take us to where we have today. Oh, and government funding. Um, how could I forget the government, both through grants and direct investments? So it's really a full spectrum fundraising journey, in which we've had the opportunity to raise from every conceivable kind of capital. Of all these different sources, I mean, for I mean, there's probably a lot of people that are listening now that maybe are only used to angels or only used to VCs. So what have you learned or how would you describe the experience of all these different you know, profiles of, of investors that you've dealt with? I mean, what is the difference between one another? That's a really interesting question. I think that there's a really key difference between, say, uh, venture capital and family office and ultra high net worth money and corporate money. Those are probably the three really important buckets that I would stack them into. I think an entrepreneur going to raise uh, angel capital um, needs to understand that Angels are looking for different things compared to, say, a venture capital investor. A VC is looking for a fund returner. You know, they're looking for their £1 million investment in you to net them £30 million that will cover the, their entire fund because the gains in, say, seed stage are so geared towards those massive wins that cover all of your losses. As you get to a much later stage, say, Series B or growth, that expectation becomes more like we expect you to return 3 to 5x, but it's going to be a lot less risky and all of the companies in our portfolio are broadly going to be doing something like that. And so you're going to be raising a lot less off vision when you're in growth and a lot more off your financial model and your customer references and just the fact that you have a machine that if they pump more money into then even more money will very reliably come out whereas at the seed stage this is probably the better way to break it down the seed to series a stage they're betting on you as founders and then they're betting on your business model working even though there's probably many things that are not yet figured out you don't need a complete functional business before you can actually start going out and raising that kind of capital. Raising corporate capital is very interesting because it takes such a long time. You can raise a seed round in less than a month um, if you're really, really quick, or probably it's a few months to get to a term sheet and then another two to three months to close. Whereas the process from raising capital from a corporate can be a two or three year effort where you're gradually building up a relationship. You're learning how the business works, who are the key stakeholders, who needs to sign off with corporate M&A in order for them to write a deal of X amount. And then the due diligence and the legals will be much lengthier as well. Um, that is a really long process, but it can be very fruitful, especially for a deep tech company such as ourselves. And angel money and family office money, there's a hundred different flavors. Everyone has their own motivations. Everyone has their different levels of diligence expected. Everyone has their own return profiles. And the best thing is simply to find the ones who fit the particular stage of the journey that you are at. This show is sponsored by BetterHelp. Unfortunately, in life, you know, there's not a user manual. You don't know what works for you, what's normal, 
when you're feeling stuck, navigating some of the changes that you may be experiencing, like maybe you're looking at giving your notice and becoming an entrepreneur, whatever that is, you know, having a therapist, you know, can really be helpful. And they're trained to help you in figuring out what's causing those challenging emotions. And also you, you get to learn, you know, with coping skills. I mean, in my case, for example, wherever I felt stuck or wherever I needed someone to coach me through it. I literally, you know, like had someone there, you know, helping me and learning with coping skills, self-empowerment, dealing with trauma, whatever that was. So as the world's largest therapy service, BetterHelp has matched 3 million people with professionally licensed and vetted therapists available 100% online. Plus, it's affordable. Just fill out a brief questionnaire to match with a therapist. If things aren't clicking, you can easily switch to a new therapist anytime and it couldn't be simpler. No waiting rooms, no traffic, no endless searching for the right therapies. Learn more and save 10% off your first month at betterhelp.com slash dealmakers. That's betterhelp, H-E-L-P dot com slash dealmakers. This episode is brought to you by Partner Hero, which provides customer service outsourcing that's built for the needs of scaling and high-growth startups. They offer flexible terms, fast onboarding, and the ability to scale teams quickly. Perfect for fast-growing businesses. I mean, let's face it, you know, you're all startups. You know, it's time for you to really stop trying to do absolutely everything. You need to get yourself out of the supporting box so you can actually focus on growing your business. So again, Partner Hero is flexible. They have quality assurance. They have offices around the world to really provide that help and support that you need. And if you're ready to bring in outside customer support help for your startup that feels like it's part of your existing team, then check out Partner Hero. Head over to partnerhero.com forward slash dealmakers to book a free consultation with their solutions team and mention that you heard about Partner Hero from Dealmakers and they'll waive the setup fee. Now, for you guys, how much capital in total have you guys raised to date? At this point, if we include our government grants, then that's about $72 million. Okay. Now, in terms of, you know, to, to, to get a good understanding of the scope and size of Cloud and C today, I mean, how big are you guys? I mean, anything that you can share in terms of number of employees or anything else that you feel comfortable sharing? Sure. So we're 105 employees today. Uh, we'll probably cap out at around 150 employees by the end of next year. So we're on a reasonably aggressive growth trajectory, even as the market is shedding talent. And in that regard, I mean, it sounds like you guys are growing very fast on the on the team. What have you learned about developing yourself at the same rate or the same speed in which the company is, you know, also going? Because, you know, in many instances, you see that founders are outpaced by the growth of their own business. So how do you do in order to avoid that from happening? That's a great question. And I've actually been reflecting on this uh, over the weekend. So it's great timing. It is so easy to be outpaced by your business uh, because as your business grows, you start hiring increasingly experienced people who've had the decades to know what to do. And it's unreasonable to expect you know, an early founder to have that kind of experience because there's just no time to build it. 
And what that means is we need to learn from the successes and the failures of others. And the best way I've found to do that is to have a very broad network of peers. I'm in several entrepreneurs sort of uh, uh, societies which meet up multiple times per year, say 80, 60 to 80 entrepreneurs all on a four-day trip somewhere where you are networking with and discussing with your peers, people who are on the same journey as you are, who are multiple stages ahead of you on that journey and can reflect and share their own experiences. And those who are also earlier on the stage who you have the opportunity to explain what you know to. And it's that very active explaining what you know, which often sharpens your own thinking to the point where you can deploy it more easily yourself. So to me, it's always about find people who have a lot of relevant experience about where I am going and speak to as many people as possible who are on that journey and in that way, I can collect all of their experience and I can deploy it within the confines of Cloud NC. And any specific methodology that, uh, that, that, that you typically have learned to apply when it comes to collecting all that info in a way that is easy to digest for you and then also in a way that is easy to implement you know, for your own journey and for what you're dealing with? Sure. So the format that um, the societies that I'm in, uh, which are um, Ice, Snowball and Founders, uh, one of the key things is we do not give each other advice. We only share stories it, because advice is um, is often devoid of very important context um, as to why a decision was made. But a story that includes experience that is relevant will often include all of that background context in a way that is really, really easy to absorb. You know, if I ask a founder, you know, what is their philosophy on hiring? And they say, only hire experienced people. That's kind of useless because I don't really know what, why that statement exists. But if they were to say, oh, I only hire people with you know, 30 years of experience and specifically what I need that person to be doing, and I don't take risks on generalists because I hired a bunch of generalists and they made all of these mistakes, but they looked like they were working very hard, um, even though they were creating lots of problems. See, that kind of story is very, very memorable. Like I, I heard this from someone many years ago, and I can just you know call it out just like that, and it's embedded in my mind. Um, but advice is not memorable at all. I hear you. I hear you. Now, imagine if you were to go to sleep tonight, and you wake up in a world where the vision of cloud and sea is fully realized. What does that world look like, Dale? It's a world in which, um, I, let's say that I want to design something, and I want to get it made. Let's say that it's this water bottle. Pretty easy. I would be living in a world in which I can use a natural language processing way of designing 3D objects, a bit like DALI can make paintings for us based only on our language input. I would expect that to exist for 3D design. I would expect whatever that software designs to automatically design components that are manufacturable and relatively inexpensive and well-optimized to make. And then when I actually want to make the thing, I would expect to just press a single button, having said, this is how many I want, this is when I want them, and uh, this is where I need them to be. And I press that button, and then they turn up in days. Uh, and they are, of course, perfect, because why wouldn't they be perfect? You know, manufacturing has become simple, easy, and invisible. And I'm then able to sell them, or perhaps I never even touch them. You know, maybe I never even see the product that I designed myself. It simply gets drop shipped directly to my customers. Effectively, a world in which I can create whatever physical object I want as easily as I can build a website from scratch in a day today. That is the world of manufacturing and engineering that I want to live in, one in which it's possible for anybody to realize their real world dreams. 
And our mission is to make that world a reality. Now, the unfortunate reality behind that is it is extraordinarily difficult to build the technology to achieve that very simple goal. Yeah, no kidding. Now, the industry as a whole, I mean, where do you think it is, you know, with regards to being able to wake up in a world like that? I think we're probably three to four decades away from being able to wake up in a world like that, one in which generative design, simulation, and manufacturing technology have taken so many leaps that we have one-click generic manufacturing with automated supply chains where we click the button and the software service that we're in queries the global you know, network of factories, finds an assembly factory that is suitable, and then that factory queries discrete component factories. You know, An injection molding factory, for example, says, I can make these parts, and then it queries a machining factory that says, I can make your molds. And our requirement progresses through the world manufacturing network without anybody actually needing to speak to each other because the software is orchestrating the entire supply chain. That is a really long way away and it requires some massive technological leaps. And it, but the most important leap that starts everything off that makes it all possible is you need to be able to take a 3D file and you need to be able to give it to a piece of software that can tell the machine what to do in order to make that. That kind of software does not exist today. Everybody assumes it does, but it definitively does not exist. And that is the type of software that we are building here at CloudNC. Now, one of the things that is uh, very important is for, for any company, you know, it's all about people. And when it comes to people and to vision and to what we're talking about here is to make sure that people, you know, continue to be excited about the future that they're living into. So when it comes to vision, how do you make sure that 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 it really gets embraced by the team uh, in a way that everyone knows in which direction you're all rowing towards. I find it's very important to be able to boil down one's mission into a simple snappy statement or a single sentence. One-click manufacturing so that anybody can make anything as easily as it is to make a website today. That is very easy to absorb. It's very easy for the layperson to understand what it means, and it's very easy to remember. And if I start repeating it, everybody in the business starts repeating it. It makes it into our all hands, into our marketing materials. A statement like that very quickly becomes pervasive through the business. Everybody knows that they are heading towards the goal of making manufacturing a single-click process. I press a button, I get a thousand of these. Easy. Everyone will have a slightly different interpretation of what that means inside their head, but it's correct enough that it will do the job. I love it. Now, obviously, you know, you've been a founder for some time. You've had multiple gigs. So if I was to put you into a time machine and I bring you back in time, I bring you back in time to perhaps that moment that you were still in university, you know, and you were wondering, okay, let's see what, what's going to be next, no? Uh, and you had the opportunity of sitting down that younger tail and giving that younger tail one piece of advice before launching a business? What would that be and why, given what you know now? Mm, that's an interesting question. And the thing is, if I had the ability to go back in time, that wouldn't actually be the back point in time that I would go to. Uh, I'm pretty happy with you know my school and university career. I'm really happy with the outcomes. I'm very grateful for the luck that took me to entrepreneur first and then took me into co-founding CloudNC. Uh, where I would, I think, go back to would be just after raising my seed round. And I would uh, take a book on hiring called The A Method, and I would beat myself around the head with it until I promised to read it 10 times over. 
uh, because all of our greatest successes and all of our greatest failures have typically revolved around picking the right or the wrong people. Um, a business is ultimately just a pile of money with a bunch of people to deploy it. And depending on the quality of the people, the quality of the outcome and the quality of your business will be so vastly different. And so to me, the founder CEO's job is only three things. It is define the vision for the business. It is raise the capital in order to enable the vision. And it is hire the people to execute on the vision. Those are the only three things that actually truly matter. Everything else is secondary. And so all effort, as I see it for myself, goes into vision, fundraising, and talent. Anything else comes behind that. And I'd say that it was the talent area that I should have increased my skill set in the fastest. So let's double click on that. So let's say you were able to go back, you know, again to that younger tail and give that younger tail maybe like three questions that you should ask someone. You know, when you are, you have them in front of you for the first time and you want to know whether they are the right fit, you know, for you and for deploying that capital and for execution. What would be those three questions that you would hand over to that tail so that, you know, that younger tail can always ask those questions? Okay, so I'd say that it's, it's not three questions. Um, that's actually part of the problem. Um, I think I probably assumed that it was three questions and it's not. Our hiring philosophy is that uh, for every role that I bring on now, I don't write a job description of responsibilities. I write a very short document of what are the outcomes that I need this role to achieve. Uh, for example, it could be triple our manufacturing revenue every year for the next five years whilst raging, raising margins by a factor of three at the same time. That is a black and white measurable goal that only the top five or 10% of candidates in the world would be able to achieve. So I will then make a list of another, maybe two or three things, a bit like OKRs that I would expect that candidate to be able to pull off. Then I would sit them down um, in a critical second phase interview where we go through their CV and we look for evidence that these things have been achieved by the candidate before, preferably on more than one occasion. Because if the candidate has, in previous roles, tripled manufacturing revenue year on year whilst increasing margins as long as a well as a host of other things then probably they're going to be able to do it for us as well they've got a playbook they've got the experience and they just need to a new place to unleash their talent and creativity and deploy it again um, that is the very high level philosophy it is find people who have already done exactly what we need done because they will probably be able to do it again and the classic mistake that startup founders make, especially early stage ones make, and I was absolutely no exception, is hiring extremely smart, capable generalists who can figure out any problem, but how quickly will they be able to figure it out? Slower than someone who's already done it before. Will they make expensive mistakes along the way? Almost definitely. And will those mistakes possibly sink your business? It may happen, and it probably will happen. So. That's why I consider it so important to hire people who have that experience now. I love it. So, Theo, for the people that are listening, what is the best way for them to reach out and say hi? LinkedIn message. Um, and uh, if it's uh, something that's, say, industry-specific that I may really be able to help with, then happy to chat. Amazing. Well, hey, Theo, thank you so much for being on the DealMaker Show today with us. It's, it has been a, truly an honor to have you here. Oh, likewise. Really thrilled to have had the opportunity to be on the show. Thank you so much. If you like the show, make sure that you hit that subscribe button. If you could leave a review as well, that would be fantastic. And if you got any value, 
either from this episode or from the show itself, share it with a friend. Perhaps they also appreciate it. So also remember that if you need any help, whether it is with your fundraising efforts or with selling your business, you can reach me at Alejandro at PantheraAdvisors.com. You've reached the end of another episode of the Dealmakers podcast. For free resources and materials, head over to AlejandroCremades.com. Thank you for listening and see you at the next episode.